We are currently living in the church age, but like all previous ages, the church age will one day end. But the question is, when will it end? How will it end? And what will be the trigger point for the end of the church? We will talk about that on this week's episode of Revelation Unveiled on Faith by Reason. Welcome to Faith by Reason. The website behind it all is faithbyreason.net. There you will find hundreds of hours of study material, blogs, podcasts, and video. And we are wrapping up our series on the church age, on the seven letters to seven churches um, by Jesus himself, Revelation chapters two and three, wherein Jesus dictated the uh, seven epistles that we've been covering for the last several weeks. And last week we talked about the church at Laodicea, which is of course the last church, which means we're pretty much (laughs) done with the churches. And one of my primary premises, my main theory behind these seven letters, and this is a a theory, a premise that is shared by many other commentators, is that these seven letters, in the order in which they were written and presented, actually outline all of church history in advance, from the apostolic age of Ephesus all the way to our modern, or rather postmodern, Laodicean church. And if that is correct, and if we are in the Laodicean age, then that means that this church age is coming to an end. However, since we are in the middle of the church age, we don't really have the benefit of hindsight in order to say how it's going to end. Now, in order to better understand where I'm coming from with all this, we need to get into one of the the big picture studies that we've been doing in in Faith by Reason, on Faith by Reason, since it began in, in 2010, 10 years ago. And that is the study of the dispensations. Now, before you get your religious hackles up and get all tense and tight because I use that religious word dispensation, I want to make it very clear to you that I am not necessarily a dispensationalist. I don't believe everything that dispensationalists believe. The reason I use the word dispensation is because it is a a familiar word. When I say it, you know what I mean by it, even if you don't agree with the whole dispensational position. What I mean when I say dispensations is eras of time. The Bible is very clear that during different eras of time, God deals with man differently through different means. He doesn't deal with the church the way he dealt with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he does he didn't deal with the Israelites under the law the same way he dealt with Adam and Eve. So the Bible is very clear that God deals with people, deals with mankind in different ways during different eras of time. And I am calling those eras of time dispensations. And what is the point of these so-called dispensations? Well, in a nutshell, the dispensations are God's contrastive way of showing that his plan for man is the only one that will work. And again, we've been talking about this on Faith by Reason from the beginning. And But if you have not been with us from the beginning and you've just come aboard during the series, the video series on Revelation, let me just give you an outline of what I mean. God's plan, his ultimate plan is for us to be with him. That's what heaven is all about. That's why God created us to be with him. But in order to be with God, we have to be like God. What is God like? Among other things, God is always and completely right and just. However, we are not always and completely right and just. And I don't think I need to make any type of comprehensive argument uh, to make you help you understand that. However, because human beings have free will, we can choose to act righteously and we can choose to act justly. So we can choose to act like God for a limited amount of time. And in theory, we could continue to just make righteous and just choices for the rest of our existence. Unlikely, but again, theoretically possible. Therefore, God cannot justly implement his plan for us 
to to be like him, which, of course, we know that plan is salvation through Jesus Christ, the atonement for our sins, where his spirit lives in us. And he, you know, he takes away all the sins and he makes us righteous like him. Um, so that's his plan. However, again, in theory, we could do it ourselves. And so God cannot justly implement his whole plan without giving man every reasonable opportunity to choose to be like God on his own. And so each one of these um, scenarios where God gives man the opportunity to choose himself, to choose God over himself, I call those the dispensations. And there have been and what will be seven of them. And in each one of these so-called dispensations, man is given a scenario and a choice to make. For example, in the first uh, dispensation with Adam and Eve, the, the question was, if man was completely innocent with no knowledge of good and evil, would he choose God over himself? Of course, he didn't. They chose a forbidden fruit and God had to judge them. And so he went to the next scenario. And that was kind of the opposite. The antediluvian or flood uh, scenario where man was given hundreds of years of life to gain knowledge and gain knowledge of God. And the question was, if man was given tons of time for knowledge, would that time and that knowledge lead him to God? The answer is no. Genesis chapter six is very clear that the older man got, the more time he had on earth, the more evil he became until the point where it said that all of his thoughts were evil. So time on extra time on earth just man, made man more evil. God had to judge the flood. He goes to the next dispensation, which was Babel, where man's lifespan was, was uh, curtailed. He was given a sense of urgency and community. And instead of choosing God, he chose to make the Tower of Babel, which was a tower to the heavens, not because heaven is in the sky, but because they were actually making a gateway to heaven. They wanted to invade heaven on their own without God. So God had to judge them. Then we had the era of the patriarchs where the the nation the, the world was divided into nations when the languages were confused at Babel. And God began to deal with the world through his nation of, of Israel through Abraham. And the question was, if, if, if God gave a representative nation, would they treat that nation right, treat them well in order to choose God? And of course, the answer again was no. With the story of the Exodus, Pharaoh, who was the world leader at the time, enslaved God's nation. And when God asked them to be let go to worship him, Pharaoh refused. And so God had to judge him with the famous 10 plagues and the Red Sea and all that stuff. Then there was the dispensation of the law where God stopped dealing with the world directly. He started dealing with mankind through the nation of Israel and he gave them his law. And so the question was, if God gives man his law and then brings about the fulfillment of his law, the embodiment of his law through Jesus Christ, would Israel choose God over themselves? And of course they didn't. They rejected their Messiah. They crucified him. And that ended that dispensation. And it was and, uh, the Israel was judged in 70 AD, which brings us to our current dispensation, the dispensation of the church, where God is now dealing with the world through the church. And the question is, if God came to live inside of Christians, had his spirit living within us, directing us with day by day instruction, if we were willing to listen and to reveal all truth to us through his Holy Spirit, as he promised, would man then choose God over himself? Now, again, of course, because we are in this dispensation, we don't know exactly how it's going to end, but we know it's going to end the same way as all the other dispensations. It's going to end in failure because man cannot choose God over himself on his own, even the church, because we, even though we have the spirit of God living within us, we are still human beings. And eventually this era is going to end and we have, and we have one more dispensation after it. So we know prophetically that this dispensation will not last. However, because 
we are in it, we don't have the luxury of hindsight as we do with all of the other dispensations. So how will it end? What can we say about it? Well, one thing we can say for sure, even though we don't know a lot of the specifics, we can say generally this dispensation will end when the church chooses it chooses itself over God. How will that happen and when will that happen? Well, I'm going to answer the last question first. When will it happen? And this is going to be provocative and controversial, but my belief is that it's already happened. I believe that the church has already made its choice and the church has chosen itself over God. I think it's happened and I'm going to explain that in a few minutes. As for how, well, let's get into the mechanism of that. And I think this will all make more uh, total sense or at the very least some sense. So I want to begin with a quote by um, A.Z. Tozer, a famous theologian. Here's a quote. Before the Christian church goes into eclipse anywhere, there must first be a corrupting of her basic simple theology. She simply gets a wrong answer to the question, what is God like? And it goes from there. Though she may continue to cling to a sound nominal creed, her practical working creed has become false. The masses of her adherents come to believe that God is different from what he actually is. And that is heresy of the most insidious and deadly kind. And again, that is a quote from H.Z. Tozer from his, uh, his piece called The Knowledge of the Holy. And I'll, I'll link that in the show notes. All right, here's my explanation. So again, in this dispensation, God chooses to communicate directly into the hearts of believers through grace, through the Holy Spirit. And the church has the option of listening to him and becoming sanctified or ignoring him and not growing. So the first step in the failure of the sixth dispensation occurred when the Laodicean-style church that we live in, in the West, let the fire of revival die. Doped by its cultural influence and prosperity, the church became stagnant and bloated, interested primarily in maintaining its position and preserving its relevance. We, we talked about that quite a bit in the last episode. Unfortunately, the secular world was not willing to abide the status quo. In the 50s was, I think, the apex of Christian prosperity. After World War II, the GIs came home. The U.S. became the greatest nation in the world because the rest of the world was pretty much devastated, the Western world. We became the primary exporter of goods. Our manufacturing was above all else. We were the, the primary lender to the world. This nation was the richest it has ever been. And so the church was also the richest it had ever been. And again, we got, we got stagnant and bloated and lazy. And that was fine during the 50s. Unfortunately, the 60s came and the secular world was not willing to abide that status quo. The theocracy of the, of the mystics in Europe, which the Catholic Church had diminished greatly by the 18th century, and it had been replaced by a rabid and voracious secular humanism that clothed itself in the facade of scientism and intellectualism. This movement grew greatly in influence over the next few centuries, and the humanists and atheists of the 60s, 1960s came to America and attacked the doctrines of that stagnant church with a fury which became known as the quote-unquote God is dead movement. In fact, there's a very famous uh, cover of Time magazine from the 60s, all black with the caption, is God dead or, or God is dead. I'll, I'll, I'll have it um, in the show notes as well. These secularists vigorously questioned the fundamental and existential truths about God, such as, is there a God? If so, how can he allow evil? Isn't God just a primitive myth? Hasn't science proved that we don't need God? Now, of course, we've addressed all these questions in, on Faith by Reason, and they're easy to address. 
However, you know, faith by reason wasn't around back then. So unprepared and unable to provide contrastive and non-contradictory answers to those questions, the church leaders of that period, the 50s and 60s, made the decision that would result in the end of the church age and the sixth dispensation. Influenced and intimidated by the secular intellectualism, the church responded to the existential questions about God by declaring that no one can objectively know who God is. <laughs> Let me say that again. The church as a whole decided that God cannot be known. I come to quote again from another article. This is from the uh, from Newsweek magazine. And I highly recommend reading this article. I'm going to have it linked in the show notes as well. Here's a quote. Uh, drawing from Nietzsche's 19th century declaration that God is dead, a group of Protestant theologians held that, essentially, Christianity would have to survive without an orthodox understanding of God. Tom uh, Altizer, Altizer, excuse me, a religion professor at Emory University, was a key member of the so-called godless Christianity movement. And he traces its intellectual roots, first to Kierkegaard, then to Nietzsche. For Altizer, a post-Christian era is one in which both Christianity and religion itself are unshackled from their previous historical grounds. Quote, religion shall mean for us the feelings, acts, and experiences of individual men in their solitude, so far as they apprehend themselves to stand in relation to whatever they consider the divine. So let me just translate that. What it basically means is that we don't know who God is. We can't know who God is. So God is whatever you feel he is when you're worshiping him, when you're praying to God, whatever you are feeling, that's what God is. God has been reduced to human feeling. So going without an orthodox definition of God was the perfect evasion for this lukewarm church. After all, if the church isn't willing to definitively say what God is, then the secularists and the atheists can't say what God isn't. They could just ride the middle ground, which is what Laodicea is all about, staying in the middle. Hey, you can't tell us, if we don't tell you who God is, you can't tell us who God isn't, so we don't have to answer your question. We can just stay in the middle and be comfortable. That is the Laodicean way of doing things. However, this leads to a huge, huge problem. Because if you follow the ladder of logic and you just do some definitive, re uh, excuse me, deductive reasoning, it becomes clear that instead of this being an escape and a retreat for the cowardly Christians of the Laodicean era, this open-ended, godless Christianity actually makes it one of the greatest heresies of all time. And here, here's what I mean by the, let's do, let's do the deductive, deductive reasoning and just go down the list. If God has no objective definition, then technically God is whatever the church wants him to be. And if God is whatever the church wants him to be, then that means the church defines God. And if the church defines God, then they also define the Bible and Christian doctrine. And if the church can tell God who he is and what his word says, then the church has made itself greater than God and the Bible. Let me say that again. If God has no definition, we can tell him whoever, who he is. He's whatever we think he is. And if he's whatever we think he is, then we're defining God. And if we're defining God, then we can define the Bible. We can define what it says and what Christian theory actually is and what theology is. And that makes us greater than God. Anytime you can tell someone who they are, if you can define them, then you're greater than them. I'll give you a couple of, a couple of examples. There was a friend of mine. Well, he wasn't actually a friend of mine. He was actually the, the co-worker of a friend of mine. The guy's name was Marion. I remember his name because what he said to me was so stark. So I was visiting my friend at work and this guy Marion was there and we got we got to talk and we started talking about God and we were talking about theology and doctrine and things like that. And Marion disagreed with me and my friend 
And he said, well, you know, that's fine for you, but that's not who God is to me. Here's who God is to me. And he starts giving his definition of God. And I said, hey, Marion, what does it matter who God is to you? You don't define God. God is who he is, no matter what you think of him. And he said, well, I, well it doesn't matter to me because when I'm praying to God, here's who I'm praying to. And I said, well, Marion, seriously, do you, do you mean to tell me that you believe that God has been sitting up on a cloud for eternity past waiting for you and God was sitting there saying, Hey, gee, I, I sure can't wait for, uh, for Marion to be born in, in 1975. So he can tell me who I am. So I finally know what I can do. That's ridiculous. I mean, it's ludicrous. Yet, if you believe that you define God and, and, and God is whoever you think he is, then God didn't have an identity before you were born. But that's what many people believe. That's what this godless Christianity movement is all about. I'll give you another example. There was a lady um, I was working with a few years ago. And again, at work, we started talking about Christianity and I started talking about some doctrine from the Old Testament. Some, th some things that the Old Testament said about morality and how people should behave. And she said to me, well, you know, I, I don't really regard that because I'm a New Testament Christian. And I said, what, what, what's a, what does that mean? What's a New Testament Christian? She says, well, um, I, I, don't, I don't regard the Old Testament. I only look at the New Testament. That's, where, that's who I think God is. That's, I believe in the New Testament, Jesus and his message of love, so forth and so on. And I said, well, that's interesting because Jesus wasn't a New Testament Christian. Neither were the disciples. Neither was Paul. Neither was John. Neither was anybody in the first century because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. So I, the people who founded Christianity weren't New Testament Christians. But she feels that she can define, she can decide what parts of the Bible she should pay attention to, and she's decided to ignore the two thirds of the Bible that constitute what we call the Old Testament. And she felt perfectly justified in doing this because she is was a daughter of this godless Christianity movement, and it's it's just. It's, not, it's ludicrous. It, it, it makes no sense. And it's a heresy because you get to just pick what, which parts of God you like and which parts you don't like. Or you can just make up God off the top of your head and just say he's whatever you want him to be. And that's when that's how you choose God. Or that's how you choose yourself over God. And that is how this dispensation has failed. I mean, the godless Christianity movement enslaves God's identity, personality, motivations, and methods to the arbitrary, self-serving, and contradictory whims of the human thought process. This results in people believing quasi-biblical perversions of doctrine, again, based on who they feel God is. Remember, the, the next movement after the godless Christianity movement in the 70s was the Jesus movement of the... Um, excuse me, uh, the God's Christianity movement of the 60s spawned the Jesus movement of the 70s. And what was the Jesus movement about? It was all about feelings. God was gone. Even, no one even talked about Jehovah God of the Old Testament. It was just about Jesus. Why? Because we have this erroneous idea that Jesus was all about love, but not the true love of the Bible, but human love, which is good feelings. And that's, you know, the 60s were all about good feelings and good vibes that carried over to the 70s. And they said, hey, we Jesus is groovy. He feels great. He loves us and we love him and he feels he makes us feel good. So that's that was a Jesus movement. And most pastors today came up during the Jesus movement. And that's why you have this touchy feely, inoffensive message that doesn't talk about that, that doesn't mention sin or judgment or anything like that. It's just about feeling good and feeling your best and living your best life. Now, all that stuff comes from the Jesus movement of the 70s, which, again, was was spawned by the godless Christianity movement when the Christians said, hey, let's just, we, we like the, the groovy feel-good Jesus who walks around and pets kids on the head and performs magic tricks and heals everybody and has nothing bad to say about anyone.
Oh my God. So this perversion of doctrine based on who people feel God is has caused the modern church to split into various Laodicean camps depending on who they define God as. For example, if you believe in the God of emotive love, then your doctrine will be based on being superficially nice to everyone, ignoring sin, being quote unquote tolerant, rejecting injustice, demonizing those you deem to be judgmental and embracing moral relativism. That's pretty much the postmoderns postmodernist and emergent church people we talked about last week, emergent church, excuse me. If you believe in the God of unearned abundance and prosperity, then your doctrine will see God as a magic money genie who will give you all your material desires if you just have enough faith currency and sow a seed and thus God's love and approval of you and of course your church and pastor is based on money. It's in, 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 in your moder- and uh, again, his, his love for you is based on monetary terms. That's why you have the, the word faith movement or these prosperity preachers that you see on TV telling you that God will make you rich if you just believe hard enough. And if you believe in a God who verifies his presence through the supernatural, you will likely gravitate to churches where the gifts of the spirit, either real or imagined, are manifested. And you have all these signs and wonders ministries. Oh, oh, and, and they believe in that kind of stuff over you know, regular biblical doctrine instead of sound doctrine. You just want experiences. You want to be like, what's that guy in the white suit, Benny Hinn? I don't know if he's still around, but he was around when I was growing up and he wears a white suit and he waves his hands over people and they just fall out and they just faint and he touches them and they fall to the ground, apparently healed and all these great, crazy charismatic movements. I'm not saying that healing doesn't happen. Of course, supernatural healing happens, but it doesn't happen in a theater and in a show like a magician. But, you know, all these signs and wonder movements, if that's what you want, then, you know, if you believe in that, then you know, there you go. You, you're, you'll be, you will be swayed by these so-called these charlatans and faith healers. If you believe in the God of strict religious legalism and tradition, then you'll likely embrace the fanaticism that leads to oppression, cults, bigotry, this lack of uniqueness and freedom, rejection of mercy and a dead theology. So you, so that'll then you end up in some of these various religious extremist groups like that Westboro Baptist Church who who holds up signs talking about how God hates gay people and you'll get into some of the, probably some of these bigoted um, uh, clan based so-called Christian movements that don't believes that only certain racial groups are saved and or you might end up in a cult so but hey if that's the God you choose to believe in then that's where you'll go so uh, continuing the explanation of, of how this ended the church, this godless Christianity movement brought about an end, brings about the end of the church because it's perverted and inverted the method that Jesus intended to sanctify his bride and make her worthy of him. And that is grace. Grace, as we discussed, uh, we've talked about a little bit last week, but we also discussed it in the uh, message to the church at Sardis. Grace is the voice of the Holy Spirit who subtly influences the heart of Christians and leads them into truth. But... If the church believes that it can tell God who he is, then the church has made itself greater than God. So when they do hear the real voice of grace, they reject it because it doesn't fit their, their idea of what the God they invented would actually say. So if you just believe in this God of emotive, uh, amorphous love and you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit giving you admonishing you and, and telling you that if you don't do right, you're going to be judged. You'll say, well, well that can't be my God. That, that's not the Holy Spirit because God is a God of love and he would never tell me anything. He would never tell me to stop doing the things that feel good to me. He would never tell me to, to, you know, to, to get my act together. He would just love me and accept me how I am. But when the Holy Spirit actually tells you that, you reject it. 
And but if the church, and again, if the church believes it can tell God who he is, and the church has, has made himself, it made itself greater than God. And here's the key. Instead of listening to true grace, the church instead listens to the God, the quote unquote God they invented and defined. But who they're actually listening to is their own flesh. Again, if you made if you make up a God in your head that that meets your needs, then that's not God. That's you. You're listening to yourself. And since the church, this church believes the words of their own flesh or whatever heretical preacher they idolize, they, they believe those words are from God. Then they reject anyone who who tries to introduce sound biblical doctrine to them and they feel justified when doing so. So if you go to a person who's, who believes in the word faith movement and you tell them, hey, you know what? God never promised that you'd be rich. It doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that by believing in God and having faith, you're going to be rich. You're going to say, nope, that's not what my pastor says. That's not what I believe in my heart. So it can't be true. And I feel justified in saying that because, again, my favorite pastor said it. And that's what I think God is. I think he's a God that's going to make me rich whether I like it or not. And if you say anything different, then you are not you're not speaking the voice of God. And here we are. So by rejecting an orthodox definition of God in the, in the 1960s, the Laodicean church replaced the voice of the Holy Spirit with their own voice. They chose God over themselves, or shall I say in a, in a big picture universal sense, we have chosen ourselves over God. We've chosen ourselves. We, when we define God, we reject him and we we replace him with our own selves. Thus, the sixth dispensation fails just like all the previous dispensations that came before it. And like I said, I believe that failures already happened when the godless Christianity movement began in the 60s. However, if I'm right, and I may or may not be, it kind of begs a pretty obvious question. <laughs> if the sixth, if the dispensation is already ended, if the church age is already over, then where are we right now? What's going on? Well, here's the thing. again, if the God of the Christian, if the godless Christianity paradigm happened over 50 years ago, then shouldn't we have moved on? Doesn't the failure of a dispensation trigger the next one? Well, the answer is yes, but not always immediately. In fact, most of the dispensations, I would say, yeah, the majority of them had a, a gap of time between its failure, its judgment, and the start of the next one for various reasons. For example, in the first dispensation, when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, well, that was the sin. They, they disobeyed God. That was original sin, right? That should have ended it. However, God did not immediately judge them when they ate the fruit. He asked, he asked them questions. He said, hey, Adam, where are you? What did you do? Well, why did he do this? Why did he ask these questions? Because God wanted to give them a chance to repent. God, even when we commit the sin, even when man commits the sin or the action that ends the dispensation, God gives him a chance to repent. The second dispensation, God claimed that he was going to send the flood. He, he, he pronounced his judgment, but then he gave him 120 years, an entire generation of Noah building the ark for them to come to repentance. And if you read the Bible, you see that there was at least a generation that occurred between the, the third dispensation of, of Babel and the fourth dispensation of Abraham. There was a generation before that next, before after the, the third dispensation and before the fourth. So they were, there was time there for the nations to repent and they didn't do it. And if you look at the, the fifth dispensation, even though um, you know, Christianity, the church started about a month after Jesus' death and resurrection, 
the judgment didn't happen to Israel for another 40 years. Remember, they, they weren't, Israel was not given the judgment Jesus promised them in Matthew 24. That judgment did not happen until 70 AD. Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended um, around the mid-30s AD. So again, we have another 40 years of time for them to have accepted their Messiah in order to have been to repent of their mistake of, of rejecting Jesus. So if my theory is correct, and that's a big if, What's the reason for the delay? Why has it been more than 50 years? My speculation is that God is giving this church one more generation, more or less, from the advent of the godless Christianity movement to, to make the decision to see if the church will repent. He is giving us, I believe he's giving us at least another generation to, to repent of this godless Christianity movement and go back to the, the truth of who God is. Will we take that? Will we make that choice? Will we repent? Well, maybe, but it's not looking good so far. And furthermore, if we don't repent, which no dispensation has before, then that means, and if we have a generation left, that means we probably don't have very much time before we move on to the next dispensation, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. So I believe the dispensation has ended, the church age is over, and we're just about out of time for repentance. But we'll see. And uh, just for the sake of fairness, I want to say that my opinion of how the church age in is not the only one. Obviously, there are many. And so I'll tell you a few of them. Uh, one of the ideas of how the church ends is, is one that's um, echoed by um, my mentor, one of my mentors, the, the late Chuck Missler. And he believed that it, it wasn't it's not going to be triggered by any particular rejection. Of, of God by the church, but actually that God in his mind has a certain number of people who he knows are going to be in the church that are preordained to be a part of the church per uh, Romans chapter eight, people he foreknew from the foundation of the world who would be part of the church. And when that number happens, he, you know, every time someone gets saved, he kind of hits the clicker. And when he gets to the, num the number of people who are, who are preordained to be in the church, then he'll say, okay, that's it. The, the age will end. If that's the case, we don't really know when it's going to happen. We don't know how close we are to it. But, you know, that's that's Chuck's opinion, and I respect it. Maybe it's right, maybe not. I have some doubts about it, and one of the main doubts is that it, it smacks of determinism and Calvinism. And you can go back to the, uh, the series on Sardis to find out how my feelings on Calvinism, but I, I don't buy into that. I don't believe that God has predetermined anything because it takes away our free choice. So anyway, that's another idea of how the church might end. There's some folks who don't believe that the church will end until the church has has um, brought about another revival. Some people believe that there's like another big revival left where the, the church will bring about God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Sounds great, but it also seems a little bit like dominionism, which we talked about very early on. And I just don't buy into the idea of dominionism because that would in order for that to be true, then you have to see the world gradually getting better into, into the point where the church is, is again making, is making the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. I, I honestly, I don't see any evidence of that, but again, that's another opinion of how it, um, the, the age might end. Then there are yet others who believe that um, the church age will not end until all of history ends until the end of the so-called tribulation, which is the last seven years of man's history of man's rule on the earth before the millennial period. And these are people who, if we, we'll get into the whole idea of the rapture in a few weeks, probably maybe a month or so from now. But these people are called post-tribulationists who believe that, you know, the church was, is, are, is going to endure 
the you know some really serious bad times that uh, uh, that uh, Jesus promised that God promised throughout the Old Testament these last seven years the 70th week of Daniel the time of Jacob's trouble that the church will go through it that the church will not escape it and that the church age will end again when the tribulation ends and again that's in opposition to people like Chuck Missler who again believes that there's a designated number of of, of people in the church and then they'll be raptured away so that's he's Chuck was a pre-tribulationist and then you have the post-tribulationist and we'll talk about that in detail but those are just some other ideas. There are probably some, a few others. You can give me your ideas of when you think, how you think the church age is going to end, or if you think it's even going to end um, in, in the comments. But again, I just wanted to uh, provide some other ideas uh, before we sign off. So the last point to make is if the church age ends and the purpose of the church is to, is to have a bride for Jesus, well, if the church age ends, if, if it fails, then does that mean Jesus doesn't get his bride? Not at all. Remember that each of the letters to the seven churches ended with the phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear. This means that the letters were not just meant for those specific churches, but for all believers individually. All believers fall into at least, to at least one of the categories Jesus mentioned, whether it's focusing on doctrine at the expense of love, whether it's enduring suffering for faith, compromising with the world, embracing, embracing paganism and idolatry, or following dead legalistic theology, or holding fast to the faith, or refusing to take the stand on any uncomfortable issues and justifying yourself by reinventing God. We all fall into at least one of the categories of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. We're all, we, we all fit into one of those categories or more. And all believers have the opportunity to heed the, the words of Jesus of repentance and embrace grace and faith like the two flawless churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia. So no matter what era you were in, even if you were born into the era of Pergamos or Thyatira or Sardis, or even now in, Laodice in the Laodicean age, you still have the opportunity to embrace the true faith like Smyrna and Philadelphia did. And the believers throughout each era of the sixth dispensation of the entire church age who do so are the true bride of Christ. The true bride of Christ will come out of every church in the last 2,000 years. There, were, there are true believers in every era of the church age, and they will be the true bride of Christ. And that is how Jesus will, will get his bride, even though most of the churches didn't do that great. But again, our job, our goal as Christians is to continue to be sanctified through sound doctrine, through the reading of the word, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, through grace, through good church leaders who are preaching the true word of God to continue to be sanctified so that we individually will be part of the bride of Christ. And that is the whole purpose of these seven letters. Jesus' admonitions, commendations, even judgments were to inform us and let us know what we need to do to be the bride that Jesus wants and deserves. And again, it is, it is incumbent upon us to do to do right and to heed the words of Jesus, of Paul, of Peter, of all the, the, the disciples of the New Testament or Old Testament, the entire word, the entire counsel of God throughout the scriptures in order to be that bride. All right, that wraps up the, the messages on the church age. And we've gone through them ad nauseum. And I believe that, you know, this has just been the most significant part of the book of Revelation for us Christians. And now it's time to move on. You guys, as we are going to find, we're going to go to chapter four. I mean, we spent a few months just on chapters two and three. 
So now we are going to go to chapter four and the, sh uh, the scene shifts dramatically. We go from being earthbound and all these, these, uh, these churches that were on earth, be it historically or throughout the ages, we shift from earth to heaven. And in chapter four, we get a look at the throne room of God, and it's going to be spectacular. And in chapter four, which we will probably cover in its entirety in the next episode, well, you know, we'll, we'll get a glimpse of what the throne room of God, throne room of God is like. And then we will get into another serious controversy, another couple controversial episode where we will talk about the so-called rapture of the church. Oh, that's going to be fun. But uh, before we get there again, next week, chapter four, the throne room of God, where John is called up into the spirit and he gets to see what's going to happen in the future. So the past is done. The present is done. And starting next week, we will get into the future. So thank you for listening and, and watching. I appreciate it. Please subscribe to Faith by Reason. You can do that on faithbyreason.net by putting your email into the right navigation area. You can subscribe here on YouTube by hitting the, the subscribe button and hitting that notification bell so that you are alerted as soon as new episodes are available. And I will talk to you next week when we take a shift from earth to heaven in Revelation chapter 4.